Movies are good, and also sometimes the opposite, hardcore opposite of good. Yeah, the wonderful thing about movies is that you just, you never know. And there are a lot of films this week that I was excited for, but with trepidation. You know, normally I'm hyped, not so hyped, or have like very little interest in going to see a film. This week we're talking about Theatre Camp, which I was quite looking forward to. I thought it could be pretty good, you know. We're talking about Sound of Freedom, which I was really kind of quietly intrigued by. And The Blackening, which I've been actually pretty excited to see for a little while. We're also ranking the Equalizer trilogy now that it's complete and maybe finished. I don't really think so. I don't know. And I watched The Cheerleader Sleepover Slaughter. Yeah. So stay tuned. First up, we're talking about theater camp. And, um, you know, I, I talked in a previous episode, I think, about not liking found footage movies, but enjoying movies that take on a kind of documentary or mockumentary style. And I didn't realize going in that theater camp was one of those. I just, I kind of saw the premise and I saw some stuff about it. But I'm really questioning, I definitely must, I think I must have seen the trailer at least once, but maybe only once, yeah, before I went in. Um, And it's about a group, an eccentric group, of people working in a theatre camp. Only the woman the documentary was, well, documentary, was meant to be following, who is in charge of the camp, goes into a coma, and her son, who is a douchebag, takes over for the new summer. And I swear to God, when he asked in the first five minutes what a gay play was, And the guy with him said, I guess, a musical? I was almost crying laughing. And it just keeps going from there. The surprisingly, like, uproarious style of comedy that was just way, way more quirky, wacky, and weird than I expected it to be. It was awesome. I thought it would be, like, funny and, like, gentle in a gentle way. And it's so much better than that. You remember Magic Camp? The Disney Plus movie with Adam Devine that was fairly kind of trash kitty fair, like most Disney Plus original movies. Um, I expected this to be the better version of it, but this is in like a, another atmosphere. It's completely different. Ben Platt and Molly Gordon are the kind of main leads who have been teaching at the camp for a decade, and they're great. They managed to be the endearing characters in the film filled with kind of, kind of terrible people characters, even while being overly fancy theater dork kids it's like if you were rooting for ryan and sharpay in high school musical which really helps this film feel like the theater version of the office i didn't want to make that comparison but it really does at times like it it manages to do stuff that should feel much more like cringe comedy than it actually is and that's what the office was great at a lot of that was cringe comedy But here's the thing, I'm just not a fan of cringe comedy, and I like The Office anyway, after maybe like the first season. first season was pretty cringe. Um, And this is the same thing. It's it's got so many moments that are so, it, it should make you go, oh, and for some reason it just doesn't. It's just laugh out loud, really hilarious instead. And I don't know how they manage that, but I think witchcraft was involved. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, anyway, um, so it's just... I don't know. I feel like it's like if one of the Nativity movies was directed by Quentin Tarantino. (laughs) It's just absolute unbridled chaos, and I love every second of it. I can't believe that, like, the speed. I can't believe that jokes can be thrown that fast with almost every one of them landing. 
It, it's nuts. It's like the MCU on crack. The speed at which these guys throw just really funny shit at you. Um, so yeah, obviously the actual plot is about the camp struggling, being weeks away from getting closed by the rich evil camp that give their kids iPads and offshore accounts. <laughs> oh, this film is so funny. Um, and yeah, it is, uh, that's another thing that it only hit me like halfway through, but I was kind of like, oh, it's wet, hot American summer. It's wet, hot American summer, but more focused on theater dorks than just regular American kids. And Wet on American Summer is awesome, and it's one of those films that every time I go back and check it out, I'm like, oh, this is even better than I thought. And this is probably going to be the same. I'll probably forget just how funny this was in a few months, and then watch it again, because I'll definitely want to watch this again. And I'll remember, and I'll just love it so much all over again. It's just one of those movies that for some reason in your head, it's so easy to underestimate how great it is. And in a way, isn't that The Office too? I don't want to talk anymore about The Office. <laughs> People have just done that to death over talking about it but it is it is great and that's fair um but yeah they have kind of fun camp activities you know like holding seances and just shitting violently on these children the line they're all virgins but she's the most virgin like <laughs> i just can't believe that they get away with some of this stuff but it's so well done it's so funny um it it is the embodiment of musicals as well, I feel like. As much as we're making fun of theatre kids, this is a film for theatre kids. It's it's the same as, like, the D&D &D movie that they did this year. It's making fun of how silly D&D &D is while encapsulating what D&D &D is <laughs> at the same time. And it's beautiful. I, I refer to films that manage to pull off that kind of parody while being a great version of it as Princess Bride. Because The Princess Bride is, well, it's my favourite movie ever personally but it's also just such a great example of these old school swashbuckling style films while also being like making more fun of them than anything else ever has you know what i mean and and i love that so much and i think that films that could do that are just truly great comedies that's that's a truly great example of just pure comedy and theater camp is exactly that for theater kids and musicals and all of this um, and I'm not, and I've never been, like, a proper theatre kid, but I loved it anyway. But I, I, like, the parts that I kind of related to as just a, someone who liked drama in high school, <laughs> um, I find really funny as well. There's just so much about this that's so great. The scene where they catch a girl using a tear stick and treat it like she's taking drugs. Oh, that's good. And the kid that's clearly heterosexual, but they're, he's, like, trying to kind of hide it, like... <laughs> so much that's so good um uh, yeah i i don't know it it feels like there's no real distinct recognizable plot i'll admit through most of it nothing in you know that feels important to what's happening on screen but it, it made me question like do comedies need that as much when it's just an out and out comedy you know not as much. Do Monty Python films have any real plot? No, and they're genius. I'm not really comparing this to them, but at the same time, this was amazing. I'm going to commit the song Women Can't Read to Memory. It was so funny. They just filled this whole thing with absolute... They just raw-dogged that script with comedy. <laughs> it's, it's filled with it. There's flames. Flames of comedy. Flames of comedy coming out of my head. It's amazing, and I'm giving Theatre Camp 9 out of 10. Next is Sound of Freedom. 
Sound of Freedom, first and foremost, it's only just come out here in the UK, if you're wondering. It took a little while, because, you know, they didn't have a lot of money for the big marketing, and yeah. But first and foremost, it's such a difficult watch that I had to sandwich it between two of the funnier comedies we're likely to see this year, just to survive. <laughs> that being said, you got to see this. Sound of Freedom is about Tim Ballard, a federal agent who has captured and imprisoned hundreds of pedophiles, but gets a sudden urge on a particular case to try and do even more. He plays along with one prisoner and gains his trust enough for him to bring Tim a young boy, at which point Tim arrests him and manages to get the boy back to his family. But when the boy begs him to try and find his kidnapped sister, who was sold to human traffickers just like him, Tim goes down to Columbia and starts to build a network in his attempts to save more kids, including this one elusive girl in particular that he's desperate to find. And I, I, don't, I don't normally do this, but I've seen a number of critics most critics that I've seen writing about this film call this, like, mediocre or bad or not as good as it thinks it is. And I have to say just, huh? First of all, because I really think it is great. But above that, this film is trying blatantly, viciously, with every fibre of its being to rise above just being a film and be more about the message than anything else. And I've heard people complain that it doesn't handle the subject matter with enough delicacy, and that's the one complaint that will really make me say fuck you. <laughs> because it's simply untrue. And if you've seen this film and seen the credits at the end, then you understand the brutality this film had trying to even get a release. It was made five years ago, it was finished five years ago, and it's only now that they've managed to get it out there. And even now it's had to rely much, much more on word of mouth than anything else. It's nearly impossible to bring up in polite conversation how bad, how drastic, how mortifying the problem of child slavery and child sex trafficking is across the world today. And you can't even try to say the terms online most of the time. I know for sure you'd get limited to no monetization from the video on YouTube because it's not friendly to most advertisers talking about this kind of subject. And if you try to say a term like child sex trafficking or child slavery on TikTok, I'm pretty sure they'd mute the video entirely. And the reason I'm pretty sure about that is because I've had videos on TikTok muted for saying the word penis or the word Nazis, even though I said those terms in the context of a movie review, where you kind of have to talk about those things. It's just insane. For critics to not at least acknowledge, and I haven't seen one really do it, after reading a bunch of different reviews from different outlets, not to even acknowledge the struggle this went through getting made, the power of what it's trying to do and stand for, that's... it's... A little despicable to me that people just are completely ignoring and brushing over this and just <laughs> judging what seems to be very harshly, because I don't see what they're complaining about, uh, the story and how it handles the subject material, because I thought it did that flawlessly, or as flawlessly as you can with something like this. Because what they tried to do, and what I think they really succeeded in doing, is making a film that feels interesting intriguing it's kind of it's got action to it it's got a real good sense of thriller across each of the different bits of what he's doing and it it's got at times just a little bit of fun of, of playfulness in in their planning as they try to put these missions together and stuff i don't see what's wrong with that you can make a really dreary film if you want to about something like this, and people have. And sometimes they're really good anyway, and they're worth a watch. But to try and make a film that just does a little bit more, is a little bit more interesting than some of those could be, doesn't have quite the, I don't know, 
overarching sense of bleakness to it and every minute of it and every fibre of the film, I think trying to not do that is kind of admirable because <laughs> above anything else, like, and you can say if you want that at the credits, in the end credits, they actually put Jim Caviezel I never know how to pronounce his name. Is it Caviezel? I don't know. They put him on the screen and he talks to the audience and brings up a QR code where he says, scan this. Get out your phones in the theater and scan this QR code and give people, other people, free tickets. That's what the QR code will do to see this film because we, we want the message to get out there and we want more people to see this even if we're not making money off it. That's not the point. And you can call that you know, if you're cynical, you can call that a marketing stunt. Or you can call it what it really seems to be, which is an earnest attempt to do something more with this film than just entertain people. And either way, it's genius. <laughs> it's, even if it's just a marketing stunt, it's a genius one. And that's part of what has got so much word of mouth going that this is, I think, now the ninth highest grossing film in America domestically this year, which is incredible considering the budget and the low marketing materials they had and everything they've done an incredible thing with this as a film they've done an incredible thing in making this so much more than a film i thought it worked really well and either way you view that like it's just it's about trying to take something that's so hard to talk about in polite conversation you know in in the mainstream normally anywhere and bringing it to the forefront of people's minds because it needs to be, and doing it in a way that's interesting enough that the mainstream, the average audience goer, you know, cinema goer might actually pay attention to it. That's nuts that they've managed to achieve all that. And I think the film is just great. I know I talked about it a little less, <laughs> what's actually going on in the film than I normally would, but he, he goes down to Colombia, he sets up this idea where they get these investors to make a full island hotel resort for pedophiles and then catch loads of them and save a bunch of kids all at once by almost setting it up, almost actually making it run. And then he goes on and does more stuff because he still didn't find the specific girls he's looking for. And that needle in a haystack journey, it's a terrifying thought, but yeah, the way he handles it, the way the film handles it, scripting, the acting, cinematography is gorgeous. Music is great. I thought they did amazing with everything, and you wouldn't know how really limited they were on budget and everything for making this. It's nuts. And I'm giving Side of Freedom 9 out of 10. Whoa! I can't remember the last time I did back-to-back -back 9 out of 10s for new movies, but that's awesome. <laughs> it's been a great week. And finally, of the new entries to the world of cinematic madness this week, it's The Blackening. And spoiled, I say. Spoiled we are. How few pure comedies have been coming out this year it doesn't feel like a lot honestly everything is yeah everything's something nowadays it's it's kind of half comedy or a little bit comedy and the blackening is uh yeah that as well <laughs> because it's horror comedy and that's fine because a nice horror comedy just a great thing to me you know i loved the idea of this um maybe a little bit more in the end than i actually loved the film it's especially watching those other two films this week as well, this does feel like a disappointment. I still enjoyed it, okay? But next to those two films, which I would give five stars to each, this was a little bit of a disappointment, okay? So, 
Um, yeah, there's a group of people. They're all black. They go to a cabin in the woods. God damn it, cabin in the woods. And they find racist Jumanji. And in truly meta scream fashion, immediately die. But then another group of black people show up and uh, they can't all die first. <laughs> That's it. That's the tagline, yeah. I can't repeat most of the great lines they said because... My skin is bleach-colored, but um, but you get the idea. You know, it's a lot of funny stuff. It's a lot of funny stuff around black culture, and um, it was hilarious. It was. It was very funny. It started off, kind of. It started off real hot, and then cooled off, and did the whole meeting up, old friends reunion in a conveniently creepy cabin in rural, extremely white America. There's plenty of God, white people on my right jokes and things, and then things get spicy again. Not that quickly. No. It's not a long film to begin with. It kind of maybe didn't even quite hit 90 minutes. I'm not sure, but didn't didn't really feel like it was going over it. And um, I don't know. The pacing was a little weird to me. Okay, they've got the first scene. You know, if you're doing a slasher, right? Yeah, do the first scene where someone dies. Nice, clean, scream style. Good. Um, goes back to before Scream, yeah, but anyway, um, and then bring in the group, the group meets up, you kind of give character to everyone, <laughs> I felt like everyone had some sort of character, but yeah, pretty minimal for all of them, um, and then, yeah, it took a while. It took a little while. They were sitting around talking for a while. There, you could see the tensions in the group. It wasn't that funny throughout any of this period. And then they go and they find the game. And then this person shows that he's got their friend tied up and kidnapped somewhere in the house. And, uh, and they have to play the game. And then there's this, like, montage of them answering questions about, like, black culture and stuff. And it's like, okay. Oh, Cool, yeah, yeah. And most of this wasn't that funny either. It felt like a proper, almost, thriller, if not quite a horror movie at this point. Um, but there are some great scenes. It does get funnier as it goes on from there. There's a lot of arguing. A lot of those moments were more serious than you expect any of it to be, but then there's some really funny scenes. The one where they argue about who's the blackest was great. And then the one where they all start admitting that they've watched Friends, like, it was, yeah, <laughs> that's good. Um... It is trying to have fun with the idea, do silly stuff, and simultaneously kind of honor black culture in different ways and do a somewhat decent way, kind of thriller idea. And it is quite a weird mix, because that's a lot to jam into such a short film. I didn't expect <laughs> Theater Camp to be the more, like, comedically focused of the two films I was going to watch out of these two, but, um... But this, it did. It did have, like, a kind of decent amount of drama and thriller aspects, um, and then they kind of, yeah, they all end up splitting up near the end. They just kind of stop playing the board game in the final act. That, yeah. Um, <laughs> I kind of thought going in, because I kind of saw, you know, the trailer. I, I saw the trailer a couple of times, I think, but I kind of thought the board game was going to be a bigger aspect. I thought that was the thing, was the board game. It's not, because it's just killers, and they're just kind of using the board game as like a thing. <laughs> As like a as like a funny thing throughout kind of the second act, and that's fine because but yeah I don't know after that because that quite felt like a funny idea that you hadn't seen done so much in like a comedy format before the whole board game Jumanji thing. Um, I liked that, and then they kind of dropped it, and I was like, oh, I felt like they could have used it a little bit more. 
And then the yeah, the kind of third act is just there's these killers, they're getting pursued, there's a twist, one of you's involved, what? And then kill the killers. Survive. <laughs> I don't know. It, it it felt like a little bit of a damp squib of a third act after what was a really interesting idea and second act. And I liked the start as well. So it was just, yeah, it felt like it kind of just whoop, 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 wind down a little bit into a very basic formulaic ending. Which was still kind of funny. The third act was still kind of funny. But I think the best stuff they had was the opening and those couple of scenes where they tried to be funnier while they were playing the game. Um, yeah, so it did just end up feeling like a little bit of something was lacking or it kind of only chose to go kind of halfway to being the really great, like, ludicrous out-there comedy it could have been and kind of went for this reasonable but average thriller that crossed bits of Saw over with bits of Scream and every Cabin in the Woods movie ever. Yeah, you can make fun of a Cabin in the Woods movie or you can be one. And I do think, I was talking about it earlier with, like, Theatre Camp, making fun of theatre kids while also being a film completely for them. I think you can do both. I think this didn't quite manage to be great at doing either, honestly. But still, though, had great bits of thriller in places and a number of really great comedic scenes, and I completely acknowledge there's probably quite a few bits of comedy in there to do with black culture that I'm just completely going way over my head. So it might be even better, but I just wasn't totally wasn't totally feeling it still i'm giving the blackening six out of ten wait a second this movie is terrible <laughs> oh wait a cotton picking minute you're telling me you haven't seen the cheerleader sleepover slaughter what do you mean you haven't seen the cheerleader sleepover slaughter Everybody in their mum has seen the cheerleader sleepover slaughter, you filthy animals. So, <laughs> would anyone like to try and guess what the cheerleader sleepover slaughter is about? <coughs> yeah. Full disclosure, it looked like complete shit. It's literally only just an hour long. Barely scratches the hour length. It's about 62 minutes. And I just wanted to watch it so I could say I watched The Cheerleader Sleepover Slaughter. Just sounded like a good movie. Probably about giant snakes or something. I don't know. I'm crying on the inside. In case you were wondering, it's about <laughs> cheerleaders who have a sleepover eventually and get slaughtered. You can say whatever you want about this, but you can't say that it's not preparing you with that title. You can judge this book by its cover. It is precisely what you think it is. From the opening five seconds of really just half-hearted cheerleading, I felt like my life might end in shame if I watched this the whole way through. But I kept watching it because I'm already living in sin in so many ways. Um, and I think this is the head honcho train wreck amongst the army of B-movie train wrecks that you just can't look away from. There are enough actresses to actually make a cheer squad, so that's something. There's a positive for you, I guess. And it's very clear from the opening locker room scene that half were cast for willingness to get naked, and the other half got cast while absolutely refusing to do so. And I can't tell what the budget for this film was. <laughs> it's, it, it's really bizarre because it seems like it had some and just placed it in bizarre directions at times. And when I say some, like, it was low budget. 
just didn't seem like it was quite as low as some of these movies I watch. You know? So, like, I've seen... Like, the Velocipaster had just a guy in a T-Rex costume. Like, an inflatable one running around pretending to be a dinosaur priest. Like, you know what I mean? There are some of them that are just brutally low quality in every fashion, and this wasn't on that level. This was more like Murder Size, which I watched last week. It's kind of... It's an indie B-movie thing, but it's not on that lowest level of hell <laughs> amount of money that they've got, okay? So, like, things like the sound quality, it's not perfect, but it's kind of better in general. Uh, the acting is really up and down, and it's hard to tell for some of them quite how much acting ability they have, because the scripting is, you know, not, not, not great. But even that, again... It's a, it's a definite, notable step up from some of the movies we do on Movies About, okay? Um, so, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, I also found out, by the way, this is actually, yeah, I found out it was a sequel, kind of, to Die, Die, Delta Pi, which was written by, like, the same, it was made by the same people, I guess. Um, they did that a few years ago. But it's only got, like, very loose connections which reveal themselves at the end so it it i don't really felt like it in affected my enjoyment of the film or lack of um but anyway yeah there's a girl who's supposed to host the annual cheerleader sleepover thing and she gets you know slaughtered uh <laughs> just yep in the shower because that's an excuse for her to be naked and then by the way like, 20 minutes later, another girl gets killed in the same jar, in a very similar fashion, after it shows off her tits. Like, <laughs> two of them in the same jar, within 20 minutes of each other. Like, <laughs> it's... There's not been a film yet that I've seen in my life that is more about tits and blood like that's it <laughs> that's it and to be fair the kind of third act had less at least of the tits aspect than i was expecting given the early part of the film it kind of cools off a little bit you know and just focuses on the, the slaughter um but yeah no the girl was meant to be hosting she gets killed and then a wannabe cheerleader hosts instead which prompts the bitchy head cheerleader who can only think oh yes yeah, sorry this is a quote can only think while making out with a guy about how to get him in there asap and her friend who sells he picks online these are meant to be teenagers right like, it it never strict... No, it, it probably does say they're in high school at some stage. But, I mean, they're a cheerleading team at school. It's not call, It's not a college. They're at a high school. Like, it's even... It's pushing the boundaries for American TV. Like, it is saved by the bell level <laughs> trying to call these actors teenagers. But it doesn't... You know, it doesn't really matter. You, you get it. You know, like, you, you know what's going on. It's Anyway, yeah. This is what Euphoria has done to America. It's brought it back around to this level. Anyway. They have a rap music video in the middle of the film. I'm sorry, I'll say that again in case you missed it. They have a rap music video <laughs> in the middle of the film, just right in there. Um, one of it's just it's just they go out for a cheerleading 
session on a random playing field at night while a rap song plays and they just I mean twerk and occasionally do a cartwheel to be fair yeah um yeah that was one of the most bizarre completely out of nowhere scenes I've seen in one of these movies and some of them have basically turned out to be porn this one's definitely not there's quite a lot of tits but it's definitely not porn Pretty much. Anyway, these actors, yeah, they just have random sexting scenes. Some not completely terrible murder scenes, like cheap looking, but not completely terrible. Um, some freaking really dumb random dream sequences, and then eventually go to a sleepover together. And I say eventually, it doesn't look like really take all that long, but the film is 60 minutes. So it took over half the film for the sleepover to begin, which just feels really wrong. Um, if we're judging on a scale of, like, a normal film, this is a ridiculous dumb thing. But judging by indie film standards, I felt, like, good about it, comparative to almost anything I've watched recently for this segment. Um, the blood and murder scenes do look cheap, the dialogue is clunky, I'd say half the actors are terrible and the others are just subpar. To be fair, it kind of does feel a lot of the time like they are just a bunch of awkward teenagers who are just being weird and don't know how to act like people as opposed to professional actors. So I guess maybe they were going for that. It seems unlikely. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite things about the film overall, though, is the... Uh, <clears throat> how do I describe this? The twerk-off at the sleepover. Yeah, they kind of get there. They play Truth or Dare, which is incredibly awkward. Oh my god. And uh, they play Never Have I Ever, which is slightly less awkward. And then they have a twerk off. While another rap music video, it's just another rap music video essentially that's playing, yeah. And as if that wasn't treading the line of being close enough to porn already, most of them are just bad at it. <laughs> like... <laughs> If you're going to do that, you might want to make sure that at least most of the actors can twerk. I think, like, one of them could do it properly, and the rest of them were just kind of going, eh. And it was, yeah. Wow. Um, but anyway, then you're kind of wondering, wait, this, this film's only like an hour long, and we're like 50 minutes in, and there's not been like, there was like three or four murders maybe earlier, just spread out. But nothing since we were sleepover. And then just boom. Just whoa. It could. It probably sets Guinness World Records for most number of separate killing scenes in the space of about three or four minutes. I think there are four separate scenes where people just, they're just kind of randomly walking around or they're in the hot tub or whatever, just suddenly all apart now after being in the same room the whole night. And uh, and yeah, the killer just kind of steps up, badonk, murder, next, badonk, murder, just kill all of them off as quickly as possible. I don't get it. Like, <laughs> why couldn't you make each of those scenes longer or kind of find other ways to spread it out? It was just literally a cacophony of people going, I'll be back, walking out of the room, dying immediately. Maybe that was meant to be, like, maybe it was meant to be a comedic thing, but this film didn't really seem like it was trying to be funny. So I don't know what the fuck. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck was going on in the decision-making here. I guess they only had a certain amount of time to film this while all the actors were together like a weekend, and they just had to really speed through that bit, but literally it's the last 10 minutes of the film where they fit in the murders of most of the cheerleaders 
and then have the big final reveal ending stuff and the final battle. That was light speed nuts. Still, despite being fascinatingly bad, it's nowhere near the same level as some of the other movies we've done in this segment recently. It also has, you know, one of the just most random, weird endings in slasher movie history. So it's got that going for it. And I'm giving the cheerleader sleepover slaughter 2 out of 10. <laughs> it's ranking time! <laughs> Equalizer? I hardly know her! Hey! I hit myself. So, you can take your John Wick or your Ethan Hunt, but they don't sit around reading books and being happily retired. Actually, they've all been happily retired, but Robert McCall seems to do it like every single movie. <laughs> he begins as the age-retired guy, and then just keeps being kind of retired or not really active or just chilling, until he isn't in every single movie. Yeah. The third and maybe final entry has hit cinemas now of this franchise, so we're going to rank the entire trilogy today from best to worst, with Other Way Around. Three. The Equalizer 2, or as I know it, the one where Denzel has hair, and it's kind of weird. It's the odd one out in the franchise. As much as he's not really retired since the last one, he's still mostly just doing lift driving, chilling, talking to his neighbours, occasionally travelling to Turkey to rescue the son of a nice lady from the bookstore... And honestly, I don't want to be the one to say it, but that first scene, kind of where he's doing that, he's undercover, he's in turkeys, taking out these guys, saving this girl. If that had been the main plot of the film, it probably would have felt a little bit too much like Taken. But at the same time, it probably would have just been better than the plot of this film ended up being. Sorry. But not sorry, because it's true. <laughs> and, and, and what we got instead of that when. Way too high stakes, yeah. First one, he was just trying to do good things, and it was a little silly when they did the ending where he traveled to Moscow to kill the boss of the whole Russian mob or whatever. But most of it was just street-level stuff, you know? When when you throw Spider-Man into intergalactic warfare, it, it changes what you get and want from Spider-Man, you know what I mean? He's a street-level hero who's sometimes getting broiled in these slightly bigger things. Robert McCall, he feels like he was at his best when he was just doing that kind of street-level thing. And this one, he's embroiled in this massive scheme where every shock or surprise or important plot point can be seen coming from a thousand miles away. <laughs> the first film, as I'll talk about shortly, was this intricate chess game between him and the main villain. This film was a messy, sneaky, secrets plot about who could possibly be behind all these weird, sneaky things happening. Could it be his random, nice, middle-aged neighbour? Or the young guy he takes under his wing to keep him away from a gang? Or could it possibly be Pedro Pascal, his ex-partner who he hasn't spoken to in years and who was conveniently there when his best friend was murdered? Hmm, I just don't know. Could be any of them, really, but those are the only characters that it gives any level of focus to and makes you... No, it doesn't try. It doesn't try to make you believe it could be any of the others. <laughs> the answer is, okay, so either it's Pedro Pascal doing all the bad stuff or it's somebody else. <laughs> like, yeah, that's the problem with these kind of things. And if it had revealed it earlier, this probably would have been better again. But, I mean, it's a, it's a fairly long film. It is about two hours long. But it takes, like, I don't know, it was like an hour 15 or so before it revealed that Pedro Pascal was actually evil. 
Like, that was too long. It was too long. They should have skipped along some of the earlier stuff, sped a little bit more through Robert just going into these gang places and getting this young guy out of there. Like, it could have sped through some of that stuff a little bit more in order to get to that point sooner. But it just really felt like it took its time and then sped the third act a little bit. Which wasn't uh, ideal. No, not not for me. I didn't love it. Um, I'm, yeah, that's my problem. If it had just done that quicker, cut some of the bullshit, might have been a little bit better off. This franchise, it has a, it's got a weird habit, you know. It gets actors in to play villains that are really on their way up in their careers. David Arbor was in the first, Pedro Pascal in the second. And neither time were these guys really playing the kind of roles that they're best at and best known for now. It feels weird watching either of these films back from where David Arbor and Pedro Pascal are now and seeing them in these roles because it's just, it's really different to what they do and what they do best. And that's, it's a shame, but it doesn't feel like the casting was really that great. <laughs> it, it grabbed them at times in their careers where they were on the rise and it thought, oh, good idea for a villain. And that's fair enough. And they're both good actors. But it does feel like, I don't know, like they're just both a little miscast. Um, but anyway, the story itself, taking away how easy it is to predict his best friend's death and that Mr. Mandalorian was behind it, is fine. And the whole film just feels a little bit like that. It is very much a sequel, trying to continue things on by going, okay, he's the CM couple other characters of the same were just inventing new sections to his backstory, and 90% of the plot is realistically the same, yeah. D down to the, he takes them somewhere familiar to him for the finale and takes out the highly trained team because he's already proven earlier in the film that he could take down any old losers, but the scary part is that they've got someone who he's been helping throughout the entire film as a hostage. That is the, that is the finale, yep, of both the first two. And the entire film, it does it, it just, just feel like a bit of a damn squib. There's nothing wrong with it. Finale set in Hurricane was just about entertaining enough to make me stop thinking about how convoluted it was. Overall, I just don't think there's enough here to justify the existence of a sequel. It feels pretty by the numbers in a lot of ways, and I'm giving The Equalizer 2 6 out of 10. Two. The Equalizer 3. Yes, this new one doesn't actually start out with Robert retired so much as the whole film is about him scouting out a retirement community. And what better place than in Italy, who already have an aging population issue up the wazoo? It's a terrible one. And they don't need, you know, Americans coming in and finding themselves there, pretending they know what the hell is going on during a football celebration. That's football, not soccer. Bastardes. Anyway. Um, so, Robert McCall is back, and he's bald again. Don't know why Denzel had hair in the second one, but I'm glad it's gone. It, it felt weird to me. And now that it is gone again, and he's in his late 60s, like... Is it just me? Or does he look a little more like Forrest Whitaker every time I see him recently? It's like the eye thing he seems to have a little bit going on as well. I don't know. Might just be me. Anyway, Robert takes out a bunch of people involved in a Syrian drug smuggling ring on an Italian island. And he's too cool to just get beat or or lose or, or happen to get shot by one of the 20 or 30 people he took out. So he kills everybody, walks away, but then gets shot by a kid because he wasn't going to kill a kid. Yeah. So he keeps his aura of being absolutely and totally unbeatable and a little too perfect in every way at everything he wants to be able to do. <laughs> but then he's shot um, by the kid, yeah, and almost dies and is saved by a doctor in a nice, picturesque, yet perfect little Italian town. So he stays while he recovers. Glares intimidatingly at some mafia types. Yep, literal mafia, yeah. We've come full circle through American action films, from it being like Russians, 
to then Koreans to like Chinese to I don't know like Brazilians, generic South Americans, the the Arabs had their turn. And now we're back to just good old fashioned Italian mafia. Yeah. And besides anything else, it's interesting to see what they think the mafia are like modern day. Is Italy really the modern day Wild West? Or do you think the film was maybe slightly dramatizing things when they had one mafia leader blatantly kill and maim several law, law officials, hang a guy out of a window while forcefully evicting the entire building of people around him, and generally do every crime imaginable, mostly in public, and get away with it all because he's just got absolutely everybody in the whole country under his thumb or something. I don't know. It's nutty. It's really weird. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, like, I don't feel like we've seen a proper reign of terror cinematically like the one that he's apparently enacting on all of Italy outside of Emperor Palpatine. <laughs> And apparently just no regular person stands up to him outside of our fun little picturesque village. Yep, doesn't matter. Anyway, <laughs> just slight convolution to the plot, you know, but it's fine. So, Robert decides after he's all healed up that maybe he should just brutally murder a few of these local mafia types because they burned down his friend's fish shop. And then big mafia guy comes to town and underestimates Robert McCall. <laughs> oh, don't want to do that. That's every film. Yep. Um, and that leads to Robert just... Really easily kill him's ass. Yeah. Like the way he guns through the guy's giant mansion filled with highly trained guards and takes him out. It feels like it should be the end of the second act or something. Literally, Dakota Fanning is this CIA agent who Robert calls to inform authorities about the drugs he found. And she comes to Italy and starts working with some other agents on tracking down these guys lawfully and talks to Robert a few times. And the whole time I just thought they're doing a slightly better version of the Pedro Pascal twist from the second one where she's going to turn on Robert and is actually involved in all this. Or at least one of her co-workers is. The guy who played Roy in The Office was there. That <laughs> was one of her co-workers. And I just honestly always expected him to be playing a dickhead. So I thought either her or him was, was going to turn on Robert and set up the actual third act. Nope. <laughs> and that's, that's the main thing that shocked me. As much as the plot was kind of convoluted, it mostly worked. It was mostly still entertaining. And then that, that final bit where he's in the mansion taking on the Italian mafia guy. I really, I was, I was stunned when that was the actual end. Um, and then part of that is because the film's also a little bit shorter. It's kind of, I don't know, R40 maybe, maybe around that, um, which is 20, 25 minutes shorter than the other two entries. So it did kind of really catch me off guard. This felt like it was made because Antoine Fuqua and Denzel Washington just wanted an Italian holiday or wanted a nice, simple final act. Maybe both. Yeah, I don't know. But it was strange. It was strange to me. I liked Dakota Fanning's character. It almost felt like they were teasing the possibility of her taking over the franchise, which would be weird, and they probably shouldn't do that. Um, but at the same time, I guess they could. Um, I don't know. The The plot was threadbare, uh, really. And even though in the second one, you know, you could see all the big twists coming from so far away that it could make you believe in a flat earth there was there was just something a little extra spicy about the story it went kind of too big in the second one but it kind of feels like they went too small in the third one the only one where they feel like they got the balance right was in the first film in the franchise i don't know if i still really enjoyed it there was a strong amount of action considering the slightly shorter runtime. Uh, it, it did it just felt like a simple last ride for robert and that's fine and I kind of hope that this is just the end of the franchise because I just don't think they're going to figure out truly how to make a, a another great entry in this franchise. 
they could do a prequel. This franchise kind of feels ripe for that, but not for much else, honestly. Um, I will say that the one thing that really made me enjoy this one, and I really did, despite shitting on <laughs> some various aspects of it, I really did enjoy this one. And I think one of the big things about that was it's the best film in the franchise and maybe the best action film I've seen in a while, actually, at making the protagonist feel like this true walking embodiment of death. Robert really feels like this just inevitable specter of justice or something. Some superhero films uh, could definitely take a few notes from the way, I don't know, just the camera framing, the cinematography, sound usage in these action scenes. Yeah, just a few a few different things. It made it feel like a unique, really well done version of something we have seen like a lot of times before, really, haven't we? Um, and so I'm giving The Equalizer 3 8 out of 10. One. The first Equalizer movie came out in 2014, by which time it felt like most action franchises were built on old-school TV series. Denzel Washington stars as Robert McCall, a mysterious older man working at a hardware store, while just, you know, helping out people in small ways. Helping one of his associates train to become a security guard, chatting with a teenage prostitute about her struggles. He's precise. He likes to read. His life is a well-oiled clock of simplicity and contentedness, which the sequels really dumped out on, mostly, like... He's still very neat and tidy, minimalistic and stuff in sequels, but like, yeah, I don't know, the level of it, it felt like it felt like it dumped out on his character in a lot of ways in the sequels. Anyway, um, so yeah, he's just, he's, he's trying to avoid thinking or talking too much about his past, you know, until the prostitute he's friends with gets beaten up and he decides maybe he can help people in some other more incredibly violent ways. And it is a little strange to me that this managed to work so well. It's got the vibe of a few other Denzel Washington movies, you know, Man on Fire, things like that. It takes a much quieter approach and doesn't have an ounce of action for a full half an hour. And then he goes into a room and fucks everybody up. And the style in which he works is kind of halfway between John Wick and Robert Downey Jr.'s Sherlock Holmes. It's brutal, precise, remorseless, and it's awesome. But... Obviously, step one is prove he's great. Step two is insert scary Russian mobster guys here, you know? Very precise, evil Martin Succus turns up and scares the shit out of local mobster guys like David Arbor. Who, in 2014, yeah, like I said earlier, haven't really fit the David Arbor stereotype role. You know, the grouchy middle-aged dude that's got some sort of tragedy in his past and is gruff but lovable? That's every David Arbor role since Stranger Things started in 2015. This is the last of his roles before that. So... Evil guys start searching for whoever this incredible mastermind is behind the killings, while Robert is just kind of chilling, helping his buddies out, smacking the ever-loving piss out of corrupt cops, whatever you fancy. But when the Russian mob guys find him and begin unraveling at least a tiny fraction of who he really is, that's when they begin this second-half chess game. And it's wonderful. It's so much better than anything they do in the sequels. It's so much more precise, methodical, and I'm not just talking about Robert McCollum's style of fighting. I also mean the script and the direction of the film. Compared to films like the first John Wick... One of the things this does particularly well is manage to have a couple of confrontations between Robert and evil lead boy Teddy before their final battle, you know? It's not like random phone calls. It's proper face-to-face meetings, during which it does. It feels like a very methodical chess game is being played between them. And I keep using words like precise and methodical because that is how every fiber of the film feels, very much in the vein of the old TV show in some nice ways, while being a much more modern action film in others. And then, you know, it was great. The fact that Robert doesn't foresee them kidnapping his friend near the end of the film is a bit silly, really. And it does feel a little off the way the film completely dumps out on Chloe Grace Moretz's character. She is hugely important, very much present as a main character for the first 30 minutes. 
gets hospitalized because one of the pimps beats her up. And instead of kidnapping her near the end, you know, it's his co-workers from the store. She does show up again at the very end of the film. Just to show that her life has gotten better because of Robert. But, yeah, there's a full, like, hour and a half there where we just ignore that character. That felt weird to me. Um, but anyway, uh, the ending, it did feel a little less intense as a result, I think, from, from not having her there. But I liked the simplistic setting of the hardware stores, the final act set piece. thought Martin Sokos played a good villain who was given a little more to do and say than the average Russian mob bad guy. Dude, oh, you think you know bad news? I'm bad news kind of guy, you know? He was one of those, but he was a good version of one of those at least. So I enjoyed all of that. And the fact that it was a really highly trained set of guys that came in near the end to fight him, you know, raised the stakes to another level for the third act because he'd already beaten up a bunch of random guys to that point. So it needed to do something there. So that helped. Um, and yeah... I don't know. You kind of get things like the middle-aged guy in John Wick, you know, uh, in the first John Wick film, who's clearly not going to be able to beat him. That's not what happens here. Instead, it does... That that just makes it feel sometimes in one of these big action movies with these incredible guys as the protagonist, like, it's a bit of a... Well, yeah, he's going to beat him. That's going to be easy. <laughs> it doesn't do that here. It, it makes it feel like an actual kind of fight. But, yeah, it's nowhere near as good as, like, any of the John Wick films for him because... The fighting style of Robert McCall is precise, it's cool, it's, yes, I'm just going to take you out, which is a nice way to do it, but it's nowhere near the level of, like, fight scenes of, like, John Wick or any of those any of those other films that really go in hard on that kind of thing. Even, the, like, extraction movies really go hard on action scenes. This does action scenes well, but it's kind of like it's it's taking a box and making it nicely brutal as opposed to any of the films in this franchise really having, like, true great action scenes for me, you know? So, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I don't think any of these films are all-time classics. And I'm giving The Equalizer 8 out of 10. And that's all for this week, folks. Next week on the podcast, I'll, I'll, I'll admit it ahead of time, it's going to be a little bit up in the air. I've got to go away next weekend, so I can't really see the new films coming out next week, so I'll be a little late, I'll, I'll week late on things like The Nun 2. But uh, next week, I'm definitely going to try and check out Past Lives, which I'm excited about. That's coming out. As well as horror movie Cobweb. I don't really know much about it, but it looks interesting. And, oh, new Netflix animated feature, The Monkey King, I'll be checking out. I'm always excited about new Netflix animated stuff. This one doesn't sound great from the things I've heard, so we'll see. I've heard the words Kung Fu Panda ripoff said a couple times. There are worse things to rip off, I guess. Um, I'm also going to be watching... Don't wait for it. Where, dear? Don't laugh. It's probably a cinematic masterpiece. And I'm going to... Interesting one I came up with here, because I can't rank the Conjuring movies without The Nun 2 being seen next week. I'm instead going to rank... Wait for it. Asian zombie movies. Because that market just kind of seems to keep pumping out cool stuff over the last 10 years or so, and they just released a new one on Netflix, a Japanese one. So I'm excited to give it a go. Thank you guys very much for watching. I hope you enjoyed. I hope you'll check out that slightly jankier episode next week. I'll admit it's going to be. And I will see you next time.